Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Like many people, it's taken me years of experimenting with food, adding ingredients here, cutting them out there to find the perfect diet. I go heavy on the plants, light on the grains, and medium on the healthy fats to feel energized, happy, and alert. And I can find them all on Thrive Market, the largest online marketplace in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries shipped straight to your door. They're offering an amazing deal right now. Get $60 of free organic groceries plus free shipping. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen now. Their homepage lets me filter through a wide selection of thousands of products based on my values. I just click a few buttons to shop for their widest assortment of certified organic, non-GMO, paleo-friendly foods out there. I don't know where else I can access my go-to snacks like Simple Mills flourless crackers, pantry staples like pasture-raised ghee, and organic apple cider vinegar, and treats like heavenly organic chocolates, all in one go. I just add my weekly haul to my cart, check out, and get back to my life. Oh, and did I mention that their prices are insane? They cut out the middleman to offer up the 50% off items sold. And now they're giving you an extra $60 in free groceries and free shipping. Just visit thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen now. So to all of our vegan, gluten-free, and paleo listeners out there, welcome to a new shopping experience that makes it easier than ever to live with specialized diets. Again, check out thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen for $60 in free groceries. There is no one other place I can go that has such an enormous variety related to the way I eat and the way I live. And I know if it's on Thrive Market, it's going to be good for me and my family. We are so excited to welcome our newest podcast sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ is a life insurance agency that uses science and data from apps, race results, and more to secure lower rates for health conscious people. Most of you know that my wife Colleen and I live healthy lifestyles. We exercise regularly, even if sometimes that just means walking our daughter Ellie around our neighborhood. We meditate and eat clean, mostly plant-based diets. Life insurance companies historically charge more for a family history of health problems or high BMI, so it's nice to know that the opposite also exists, a life insurance agency that rewards health-conscious people like us. Plus, the data is there to back it up. An overall healthy lifestyle is associated with a 57 to 60% lower risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. It's hard to argue with that. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash mbg, or mention the promo code mbg when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Hey everybody, I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast, and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears, I would love to hear from you. So, ask me anything, and stay tuned for the answers, or your dream guests, on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Light Watkins is one of my favorite meditation teachers in wellness today. He's also the co-founder of The Shine, a global variety show, which I've had the privilege of speaking at. What's really cool, though, is Light has written a pretty awesome book about meditation called Blissmore, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. He makes meditation accessible, interesting, and gives you a plan to start meditating right now. Light, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here in this wonderful studio. Thank you very much. We are so glad you are here. One of our favorite members of the MBG family. And you've got a new book out, Blissmore, which yes. we'll talk about at the end. Everyone has to pick up because who doesn't want a Blissmore? 
Exactly. <laughs> I right? Think, I think that's what the publisher thought when they <laughs> came up with the title, Bless More. Oh, you got to take credit for that. Like, come yeah. on, don't give it all to the publisher. Well, but. I like the subtitle, which is How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So let's let's go back in time to Little Light Watkins. Yes. And growing up. Yes. And what was that like? And I also want to talk about your, your father, too. Yeah. One of the things that I, I kind of opened my meditation talks with is... I grew up in Alabama, and and I say that they roll were, tide or Auburn, uh, roll tide. <laughs> but you know, got to get that out of the way. Yeah, I mean Auburn. If Auburn ever beats Alabama, then they, <laughs> they obviously have a very respectable team, and so I'm I'm into that too. But yeah, I talk about how there are more snowstorms in Alabama than there were meditators growing up, and ironically, there's a <laughs> snowstorm in Alabama today. Climate change, exactly. Oh. It fires in L.A., snow, snow in Alabama, and then just kind of regular cold weather in New York. So, um, yeah, I didn't grow up with this, you know, with any kind of sensitivities towards meditation. It's the Bible Belt, so I was very much, you know, part of the church community. And and um, you like Baptist going to gospel on Sunday or uh, Methodist? And okay. it wasn't it wasn't a particularly it wasn't what you would think. I know a, a black church would would be like it was kind of very dull and boring and we actually it was an all black church with a with a white preacher. Are you serious? Yeah. And he would just kind of read to us during the um the sermon. And I was in the choir and went to Bible study in the summers and but I always kind of felt out of like a fish out of water in in the church scene. I I was I was into the stories. I was into, you know, the community aspect, but I just didn't really connect with the knowledge. Hmm. And I didn't know why, because, you know, when you grow up... Because there's a white guy preaching to an all-black church. But that didn't even really make the connection. (laughs) I didn't make that connection um, back then. I just knew that something was a little bit weird about the whole thing. And it wasn't until much later when I left Alabama and then uh, started traveling around the world that I started to find my own voice. And I started reading these these uh, New Age spiritual books that I started with. I think The Celestine Prophecy was my first one. Did, oh, you, wow. did you ever read that? I don't think I've read. That's, uh, is that Do- no, that's not Dawkins, is it? I don't remember. No, it's not Dawkins, but... Um, I know the book. Yeah, it was one of the first ones that, it, that became popular. It yeah. actually went viral back in, I think, the nineteen early 1990s or something like that. And that was my first exposure to the concept of oneness and, you know, everything is connected and there are no coincidences. And it was really exciting just because um, I didn't have anybody really in in my hometown to talk to about those kinds of things. So uh, just seeing how that that book was going viral and I was very much into it, it made me realize that there's a whole other community of people out there who are not necessarily Southern Methodists or Baptists and, you know, and they're interested in the same kind of things that I'm interested in. And then it was about this, you know, my life was uh, turned into this uh, quest for more, more of that. How old and were you at this point? Do you remember? At this point, I'm in my early 20s. And you asked about my father. My father yeah. was, was a lawyer. He, he was a civil rights lawyer. He's he, a big deal. He, well, he, yeah. he had a lot of landmark cases um, growing up. And, and I didn't know it at the time. I, to me, he was just this guy that worked all the time. And he was <laughs> a very hard worker. And he always talked about the importance of working for yourself. And so I had this idea of, this notion of, of entrepreneurship um, very early, and and uh, but la- later on, I, I you know when you become an adult, you start to look at your parents a little bit differently, and and yeah, he had, I think he's he's got some kind of record for never he's never lost a case before. Wow, however many cases he's done, dozens and dozens of cases, and um, it's like out of like a John Grisham novel, yeah, something like that, yeah, and he's very well respected down in that part of the country. Um, and well, specifically to civil rights, civil rights. Yeah. But then he ended up getting into a lot of business stuff. And, and so he's, he's definitely one of the smartest people I've ever come across. And he's always been smart. My whole family's always been very funny. And, um, you know, literally my parents are like some of the funniest people I know. Like when I talk to them, even today, I was talking to my dad last night and he just had me cracking up. (laughs) And part of that, I think, is the accent. They all have Southern accents, and it's, you know, and they're kind of, they're very ingrained in that culture. 
and you know, my dad grew up in the '50s and '60s during the civil rights, and so he's that's still that the fact that that has kind of resurged as mm-hmm. a part of the conversation <clears throat> validates all of his, you know, his narrative that he's been it's been consistent with him this whole time. You know, you have to, you know, uh, there's still a lot of racism in the world, and you know, all the things that people in the African American community. Uh, talk about but not necessarily openly but among Mm -hmm. among themselves or among ourselves we talk about it and um so it's just it's interesting to have his perspective from way back then and and he's got this kind of unfair advantage i think as a citizen of of the country in that he understands the law very very well and so he knows his way around uh, what he can get away with, what he can't get away with, when he's when he's um, discussing things, and, and he's 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 known for being a bit kind of confrontational and 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 in standing up for people who are being injusticed. So sure. So that's been kind of a fun thing to witness, and he's a great resource to talk to about all things political and just current affairs, and you know, lots to talk about. He's these always days. got something. To, yeah, he's always <laughs> got something to say about everything. So I'm really really fortunate to be born into that family. And so you start your journey, you read this book. Yeah, I read the book. And then what's, what's what do you say to your parents? Like, hey guys, I'm leaving Alabama. I'm going to become a meditation meditation teacher in LA. Uh, like how, what, what happened next? No, man, that was a long, <laughs> so teaching meditation is my fifth career. Let's go through one through four. <laughs> I know there was an underwear model at some point in there. So I went to college in D.C., I went to Howard University in Washington D.C., and uh, and I didn't actually read that book until after after college. I graduated and went to uh, work in advertising. I was working as a junior art director in advertising in Chicago, my first job out of college, and it was a great job. I loved it. I I majored in advertising, and I was very much into creativity and campaigns, but. I realized that really quickly that I didn't want to work at an office. It wasn't for me. Sure. And this is way, this is 95. Chicago's very cold too. And Chicago's very cold. I was only there in the summer though. Okay. So So you lasted a summer. So yeah, I I just, you know, here's what happened. I looked around the office and I just saw people were very comfortable. You know, mm. they had 401ks, they had retirement plans, they had titles, nice cars. And weirdly, I said to myself, I don't want to be that comfortable because I knew that if I got comfortable like that, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to disrupt it. I wouldn't do sure. things. I wouldn't take chances. I wouldn't take risks. And, um, and I just saw more value in taking a chance or, you know, doing something not for the money but because it made you feel uh, uh, excited so I chose to leave that after about four months and I didn't know what I was going to do back in college I had done some amateur modeling and uh, amateur modeling what does that really mean like it means I did a couple (laughs) fashion shows for homecoming you know unpaid and uh, it's funny one show I was really skinny too I was I was 145 pounds I was 6'3 Wow, 145 pounds. That's how skinny I was in college. What were you eating back then or not eating back then? <laughs> I just, I never was really into physical exercise. My parents didn't really do anything physically. My mom walked sometimes. My dad didn't really do anything. And and so, and they didn't want us to, they discouraged us from playing sports growing up. Oh, interesting. So, growing up in Alabama, that's growing like up in Alabama. anti- I know, I know. So I never really... You never really, played football? No, None no. Of that? I did recreational stuff around the neighborhood, but nothing, no, no, oh, nothing wow. organized. Because you're an athletic guy too. That surprises me. I am me. now, but back then I was very awkward and gawky. I was usually the first, uh, when the school year started, I'd be the first guy picked you know, they used to go around picking people. Sure. I used to be the first, because I was always the tallest person. Sure. So I was the first guy I picked on the basketball team. And once they saw me dribble the ball, that was it. That was it. And then after that, <laughs> I was the last guy picked after all the women and everything. Because <laughs> I had no coordination at all. And I wasn't interested in, in developing any coordination. Some of my most embarrassing moments in life happened on the basketball court, just trying to manage the ball and not manage look, the ball and not look like a complete doofus. <laughs> 
And I was so happy when I graduated high school that I didn't have to do any more physical education. Oh, wow. You know, college, you can do things like Taekwondo, which was like not a big deal. I took a bowling class in college. Took a bowling class in college. Anything (laughs) anything that didn't require me to have to put on shorts and sneakers and go out and compete against other guys who were stronger than me. So, um, So I did a couple of fashion shows, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the burly, brawny guy at all. I was the skinny guy. And I remember, this is back when biker shorts were really popular. <laughs> so I remember one time. <laughs> I, think, I think in some part, in some areas of the country, they're back. They're still, <laughs> they're still there. With guys. Yeah. And that's all you wear. Not, not like under your shorts, but that's all you wear, the biker shorts. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. No judgments here. <laughs> Blissmore. I'll judge you. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember there's an amateur fashion show with... Uh, and we had to wear biker shorts. That was the that was the outfit. Just biker shorts. There's no top. There's no bottom. Just, just biker shorts. Biker shorts. <clears throat> yeah, two different pairs. And I was doing it with. I was walking the runway with this other guy, and the other guy was very brawny and you know muscular. And so I had the idea when I put the biker shorts on. They're like, you know, I'm the skinny guy, six foot three, biker short. That's all I had on was biker shorts. Chest caved in. And I thought, you know, I've got to do something to kind of make myself stand out over this other guy who's like all brawny and everything. So I found some, a pair of socks and I put the socks down into the biker shorts. In oh, the front. no. So you really did that? I did that, yeah. And then we also had a pair of bikinis on underneath the biker shorts. So in between the bikini and the biker shorts were this, was this sock ball. And this is what I thought I needed to do in order to feel validated, right, as I was walking down the runway. So we have the outfit on, and then 30 minutes later, we're, we're, it's our turn to go out into the runway. We're walking down the runway, he and I, and we're kind of like, you know, you kind of pretend like you're having a conversation just for the whole spectacle of it, and we're talking, talking, talking. You know, it also keeps you feeling very natural. Sure. We get down to the end of the runway, and the guy goes, let's take the biker shorts down. And so we took the biker shorts down. I forgot about the sock, and the oh sock drops out onto the floor. And everybody, like, I was talking about humiliation. Everybody was dying laughing. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my amateur modeling, modeling experience. Yeah, exactly. And so after that, I didn't really do much. I didn't do much modeling. <laughs> so what was next after that? So then I'm in adver- I'm at this advertising agency, and I'm thinking to myself, you know. Um, actually, at that fashion show in the, in the back, in the back of the, in the backstage, I, hear, I hear, heard these two guys talking about Miami was this emerging fashion scene. So sure. I, for some reason, I always it's like had the that. minor leagues of modeling. A yeah. Lot, yeah, and I had that in my head. So in Chicago, I'm thinking, you know what? I'll, I'll go to Miami, and this is literally like, you know, two years later. I'll go to Miami and I'll try out modeling. Why not? Now I didn't know at the time that you don't, you don't decide that you're going to be a model. <laughs> <laughs> somebody else discovers you and that's right. usually how it starts um but i didn't know that and so my plan was to quit the job i went to my creative director i said you know i thank you for the opportunity it's not really for me and i, I figured i could always go back advertising is not going anywhere i could always go back to it if i wanted to but this was my one shot to really just kind of go out into the world and and just taste different colors of life and modeling would be the 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 on-ramp to that and uh, and so I went around to different modeling agencies in Chicago. I got some pictures done by a fine art photographer, which is the worst kind of photographer to get your pictures done for modeling. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have these fine art pictures of myself, you know, and uh, everybody rejected me, rejected it and rejected me. And I was like, oh, that wasn't really what I was hoping for. How come you don't share any of these on Instagram? Exactly. You know, I, I actually still have some. I have to pull them out. But okay. This is way back before digital cameras. So I'd have to like, you know, take a picture of it or scan it in or something like that. And uh, I got ended up getting the pictures redone. And I finally got uh, an agent in Chicago. And, and, uh, and I told her on the first day, I, my plan is to go to Miami. I don't know why I was locked in on Miami, but any I eventually made it down to Miami, and uh, and and same thing happened. It was very hard to get a representation. The last people that I went to, they reluctantly accepted me. And then about a month later, I got this job, which was a half day for Macy's on the beach with this woman, and um, and it was it was great. It was like three shots in a BMW. I got paid seven hundred and fifty dollars for that half day shoot, and I thought. 
I've arrived. This is <laughs> this is the life. I'm on the beach. I'm on South Beach. There's this beautiful woman. I'm being paid to sit in this BMW and take these pictures. And uh, and that was the only job I got when I was in Miami <laughs> for about four months. <laughs> so that $750 had to I had to stretch it out. <laughs> won't, won't stretch very far on South Beach. No. But, you know, I, I ended up getting a couple of little odd jobs and, and uh, left Miami and started traveling around the world. I lived in Europe for a while, which was awesome. Lived in um, New York for six and a half years. So and what were you doing in New York at the time? So I was modeling so was the, the whole time. So you're still modeling, modeling. You're waiting still... tables. Got it. So then I went into my... So modeling was my second career. I, I count advertising as the first okay. little mini career. And then I got into the board game industry. A buddy of mine who model with me... Uh, we had a couple of really good years, had some disposable income. And this was before like startups and founders was sure. a part of the was, the culture cultural <clears throat> jargon. And we decided to start a board game company because we both loved playing games. Wow. Really? Yeah, like, you know, Monopoly, Taboo. So we would have these game nights on a regular basis. And then uh, we we wanted to put our money into something. And so we said, let's let's create a game. Was why not? And so we didn't know what kind of game we wanted to create. And then one one day he comes to me and says, "I had a dream last night about this spelling game, a party game where you spell words in different ways, such as backwards and and skipping a letter and from the outside in." So for those of listeners who don't know, the outside in spelling a word from the outside in is basically let's say you're going to spell Jason. So Jason would be J N A. O-S. Oh, S. Jason from that side. So we thought that would be fun. And we, we developed this this uh, prototype and because um, I was really into graphic design and I was also doing some design work on the side. And we took it around to our friends for game night. And we never told anybody it was our game or our, our idea because we wanted to get honest feedback. And sure. as you know, sure. people know that you're invested in it. Then they're not going to tell you right. the real, real truth. So... Um, so that was a fun f- experience with test marketing something, and I think our instinct ended up being correct because uh, w- the most important thing about a board game is the ru- are the rules. Mm-hmm. They need to be super crystal clear, and they need to be written in a way that even the most intellectually challenged person can figure out how the thing goes. And uh, and that's, I think, one of the, the things that developed my... Um, ability to teach effectively is just understanding that you have to really write and and instruct for the lowest common denominator so that everybody can get it and uh, so we'd be in there playing uh, having someone else we'd always have someone else read the rules of the game and if we got it wrong then we just kind of look at each other and and make a mental note, okay, we have to change that tonight because that's not how you play the game. But we'd go ahead and play it anyway, the way that they read the rules, just to kind of see what would happen if someone else did that and we weren't in the room. So over the course of multiple iterations, we finally released the game at the New York Toy Fair in 2001. And uh, we got orders from Barnes & Noble, from what Toys R Us. So the game is called Could You Spell with a Twist? And it's could you phonetically, so C-O-O-D-J-U. They still have some on, on Amazon if you Google could, could you. Um, and and uh, it, it went really well for a first-time game. And we actually, you know, we, we wrote a lot of orders. And then what we realized was that adults don't to particularly look forward to public spelling words in front of their friends <laughs> <laughs> outside of our little mini friend group so the momentum for the game um, you know it started off strong but then we didn't get a lot of repeat orders for it but what would happen is when people were around it even though they didn't necessarily want to play because they didn't want to embarrass themselves they would end up chiming in sure during the game so then that then we ended up creating a, a ch- children's game, which we thought would be a better market, and went to the educational fairs with that. And then we did another couple of games. And then we licensed the games to another company that ended up going out of business. So that retired us from the board game industry. And we decided to. We didn't really want to be in the sales sure. uh, game. We just wanted to create. So at that point, my business partner had moved to Los Angeles to get married. And then I... Uh, 
migrated from New York to, to L.A., which is what a lot of people were doing at the time, and knew that I wanted to get out of modeling and I wanted to get out of the board game industry, and then and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had been doing yoga in New York and uh, some meditation, and, uh, and so I knew I wanted to do something having, oh, wow. having to do with spiritual... Where were you going to yoga in New York? Do you remember? Yeah, back then I was going... <clears throat> I started off at Equinox. Sure, like everybody. The first Equinox in existence up on Amsterdam and yep. 76th Street. And my first yoga class, I absolutely hate it. <laughs> I went to it because I saw these, you know, really attractive women lining up outside of the exercise room, and I just wanted to see what they were up to because they did. It looked different from a yoga uh, sure. an aero- an aerobics class experience. And uh, but you know, I kept going back, and eventually I started to get really into it, and um, and so then I started going to Ohm. Remember Ohm? Yes, yeah, Cindy. Uh, Down on 14th Street. Or 23rd Street or one of those places. Cindy Lee, right? Yes, yeah, Cindy yeah. Lee. And then they move locations. And then, um, yeah, and then I moved to L.A. And I started, I decided I was going to become a yoga teacher. Oh, wow. And I started taking a bunch of classes. And then. Where were you going in L.A.? Do you remember? My first yoga class in L.A. was at Crunch in West Hollywood. Crunch Oh, Gym. wow. And what's interesting about that. <laughs> I can think of a lot of things interesting about that. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the see-through showers, what's interesting about that. <laughs> Is that really a thing at Crunch? And yeah, they have a stuff? silhouette. So when you walk into the lobby, you see these frosted glasses with silhouettes moving behind them, and you realize that's those are the men's and the women's showers. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, which is interesting. So um, the first class I went to at Crunch was taught by this guy named Will. And the name rung a bell, and the wheel is not a very, you know, it's not, it's not a common name, but the, the, m- my favorite class in New York, in all my New York uh, time, was taught by a guy named Will oh, at uh, New York Health and Racket on the Upper East Side. My girlfriend at the time dragged, dragged me to the class. I was on the Upper West Side, so I really didn't want to have to go to the East Side, you know, during rush hour across the park and, you know, have to deal with all sure. that. So I reluctantly went, and I was the last one in the class. And and he and this guy named Will was a teacher, Australian guy, and uh, it ended up being a just a very strong and amazing class. And he said some wonderful things, but I never went back because it just wasn't convenient. Anyway, I thought for half a second when I saw this guy named Will on the schedule at Crunch uh, that maybe. Maybe I wonder if it's the same Will because there was no last name or anything. Sure. Turns out it was the same Will. Wow. Will had relocated to L.A. a month before me, and I went up to him and I said, "Hey, you know, um, I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago I took your class, and I think I took your class in in New York. I think that's you." And he said, "Yeah, I remember you." He said, "I remember you because your girlfriend saved this uh, place for you, and I was attracted to her. I didn't." I think she had a boyfriend until you walked in the room. So I remember that. And, uh, and that was very funny. And um, so we became fast friends. And we, you know, we had a lot of shared interests in spirituality and stuff. And, and, uh, and then he was the one that introduced me to, to Charlie Knowles' dad, Tom. Tom my, Knowles. My meditation teacher about three months after that. He said, I met Tom. I, I met this guy 10 years ago in Australia. And it's changed my life. And you should come and meet him too. And... Um, and I went to his living room one night in February 2003, and uh, there were a bunch of people from his yoga class there. And I, did, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting anything. And I often say if you would have stopped me before I walked into the room and asked me what I was going to do with the rest of my life, there was, there was a 100% chance it would have nothing to do with meditation. Like I was not thinking that at all. But if you, would have stopped, if you were to stop me when I came out of that room after having met Tom, I would have declared that I was meant, destined to be a meditation teacher. And so there was something about that night that it affected me. It, it, it inspired me. Tom inspired it, Just his energy. His, yeah, so what happened? Describe what? Describe, have you met Tom before? Uh, yeah, I know Tom. Okay. Uh, so just to describe for people yeah. what, you know, what Tom looks like, yeah. his energy. Just so back t- talk then, to people like what and what happened in that room. Yeah. Back then, well, it was an so that's inter- a pretty significant moment in your life. It it's was probably the most, most pivotal, sig- most pivotal <laughs> moment of that's your right. life happened in that room. So what happened in the room? <laughs> we don't talk about what happened in the room. No, I um, 
Yeah, I was just sitting there. And first of all, Tom was, I guess, hiding out in the back room, you know, while we were all kind of getting there and gathering and getting settled. And then Will had us close our eyes, which I've never seen anyone else do with Tom because I've been around a lot. And uh, I don't know why he may, maybe thought that would be more mysterious or something. We closed our eyes. And the thing with Will's apartment is I had spent a lot of time there and the floors are very creaky. Like you could hear everything. You couldn't, you could hardly breathe without the floors creaking. And for some reason, Tom just kind of appeared in the front. Because he's a wizard. And I didn't hear anything. And I thought, okay. And that's the first thing that got my attention. I was like, this guy, what, what, what just happened? How did he get here? And he's sitting in front. And so I'm expecting Mr. Miyagi, basically. I'm expecting the guy with the long beard, with yep. the, the mala beads dripping, the accent, the, you know, the robe. Because Will had kind of talked him up as his really amazing guru, meditation figure, teacher. Yeah. And meanwhile, he looked like an insurance salesman. He looked like really? he was like a, yeah, he was like a middle-aged white guy with with a clean shaven, um, with a button-down collared shirt on. Tom has changed his look since. With khakis, yeah, yeah. No, he's completely different now. And the only accessory he had on was a pinky ring on one finger. It was like a tri-band pinky ring, and he had a watch on a leather, an orange leather band watch on his other hand, and uh, just looked kind of clean cut and you know just regular guy like you wouldn't even think twice if you passed him on the street but he was radiating a level of happiness that i i don't ever i don't think i'd ever seen before in anyone and it wasn't like he was smiling or anything like that he was just exuding this sense of peace what was his voice his presence his His, everything what was the room like it described so he was just he was very confident he was very comfortable in his own skin you could tell that he had these kind of piercing eyes, and he started talking, and he was super charming and funny. He didn't use any filler words. There was no uhs or uh-huh. He just he spoke as though he was kind of like channeling, but it was natural. It wasn't forced. It wasn't airy-fairy. And these were all the things I was kind of used to. If someone said, we're going to a meditation talk back in those days, it was very hippie, dippy. Get out your journal. Yeah, get up, Jonah. We're going to do Kumbaya <clears throat> first, you know, shoes off, patchouli, the whole bit. <laughs> but it was none of that. It was just a normal talk with someone who's very centered, grounded, and it's and appeared to be happy. And so it, I had a calling inside, just li- just watching him and, and seeing how it affected me. I just thought to myself, wow, I want to have this effect on other people. So what did he say? Did he talk about this is what meditation is, this is what I do, this is yeah, Vedic, you know, he, this is, he talked or did he about, walk you through, like, okay, who wants to learn? Like, what, what was the... Yeah, he talked about meditation in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about it before. He talked about it in a very practical, real-world way. He said, you know, you don't need to cross your legs, you don't need to sit up with your back straight, which was all completely revolutionary for me to hear that. Because that's the only way I'd ever been meditating. You don't have to focus. You don't have to control your mind. And then he started talking about mantras. He didn't mention TM or VM or any of those kinds right. of labels that I remember. He didn't get into the history there. No, because there was no Vedic meditation at the time. Right. At the time, he was a he was an independent teacher of transcendental meditation. Right. And, but he didn't get into it. Although there were there was a picture of. Uh, Guru Dev, which is the teacher of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, yep. on the on the on the table outside next to him, and he did point out that this was his teacher's teacher's teacher, and that's pretty much all right. he said about well, that. Well, Maharishi, he learned from Maharishi. He learned from Maharishi, yeah. who learned from the other guy. But, right. But when you're teaching this particular tradition, you how ha- you you always uh, display a picture of Guru Dev, sure. not Maharishi. Maharishi yep. was very adamant against not having himself sure. positioned as a guru. Which is funny. He he was like, this is the guy people know for yeah, that's meditation the one that in the Western world that. and exactly. the Beatles yeah. and like he's, he's seen the as guy. the founder yeah. of. But TM. it was actually yeah, and um, that's a whole other podcast. Yes, <laughs> a whole other podcast. So <laughs> we could do a whole hour just yeah. on that. So so yeah, he's he's talking about he's 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 and and, and that's another thing I hadn't really uh, seen in other people is a connection to a lineage yep. that extended beyond the person. I mean, people say, yeah, this is from yoga, this is from, but no one had a specific lineage. And I thought that was interesting. And he talked about mantras and how to, you so, know. Which ha- is a meaningless, explain to people what that so, is for those who don't know. Yeah, so the mantra is is uh, is usually a Sanskrit word 
that is that can invoke different experiences and but there are specific mantras for specific purposes in the same way that if you go to like a CVS or something and you go to the pharmacy there are pills that all kind of look sure. alike to the naked eye but a pharmacist understands that they're all for different purposes and so if someone who's studied in the meditation arts understands that certain mantras can yield certain experiences so not all mantras are created sure. equal. And there are I, something I've talked with Charlie about, Charlie Knowles, Tom's son, is like there there are a couple like kale of mantras. Yes. Like superfood. Like no matter what you have. That's right. No matter what diet you prescribe to, they're going to be okay. That's it may right. not be optimal. It's like eating kale for That's the most right. part. Everyone should eat kale. That's right. That's right. For the most part. Yeah. <laughs> and so the mantras that people are mostly familiar with are Om and Namaste and, yep. and Om Shanti and those kinds of things. And those, all, those mantras either have an association with something or a meaning with something. And the mantras that Tom was talking about were these mantras that were used for the process of transcending, which is where they get the name transcendental meditation. And that simply means you're able to kind of move beyond your, your mind. And he made a really interesting distinction that night. He said, this is not about stopping your thoughts. You can't stop your thoughts because trying to stop your thoughts with your thoughts is an exercise in futility. But what you can do is you can go beyond your thoughts. And, and the mantra's sole purpose is to take your mind from thinking into being. And that was all, again, it was very different from what I experienced before. I never had an experience of transcendence in meditation. For me, meditation was just sitting there biding my time until mm -hmm. whoever I was meditating with was finished <laughs> and we can get on to doing whatever we wanted to do. So it was very boring, laborious. Sure. And this was all music to my ears. This, the proposition of going to a place where there are no thoughts and there's this pure inner peace experience. And I, I, part of me didn't even believe it because I'd had so many uh, failed attempts at achieving that. But because he was who he was and he embodied what, he, what I felt like he embodied, um, I wanted to at least give it a shot. And so at the end of the his talk, of course, he get, it ends up being a sales pitch, right? Sure. For a meditation well, the, course. The best sales pitches don't feel like a sales pitch. That's right. So, <laughs> Although he, everyone should go buy your book, right? I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> and check out all your, your classes on my buddy train. Right. But Yeah, so he told, okay us, he told us how the training works. And you know, he talked about bringing fruits and flowers. I mean, all this exotic sure. stuff. And I thought, man, this is, this is like the best thing ever. Like nobody's <laughs> doing this. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be the first one out of anybody that I knew who was doing this. So I showed up the next morning at seven o'clock and I had, you know, I basically emptied out my bank account, which was hit, hit so that the course contribution was a voluntary sliding scale based on your salary. Sure. And uh, my, at the time I was becoming a yoga teacher, which was my fourth career. Is that right? Fourth career. Yep. So we have, now we're up to, we did your advertising, we had uh, modeling, we had board game. Now we're in yoga teaching. And, uh, but I was a new teacher and I was, you know, I basically so you did your yoga training anywhere. and all that. Yeah. I did the yoga training. Um, and then I was probably making, I don't know, $300 a week teaching, but yeah. obviously needing, needing to make more. And so I probably had a, about eight or $900 in my bank account. And instead of giving him $300 or $200, which is what I probably could have afforded, I said, you know what? This is such an interesting proposition where I get to determine the value for this thing. I want to use it as a way of kind of announcing to the universe. This is how I was thinking at the time. Oh, I had read amazing. all these all these sure. spiritual books and you know how there's everything is connected. And uh, and so I gave him four hundred dollars, which was a, definitely a big pinch for me. That's huge. Well, any if, that, if you got nine hundred bucks in your bank account, yeah, like half anything my net, is significant. Yeah, it's, it's half like, my net it's worth. Like for, yeah, it's a lot of dough <laughs> at the time. Yeah, and, most people uh, would be like, oh, five percent, two percent. Right, you got to live. You got to eat. Yeah. And I just knew that it would come back, it would be refunded back to me. And, and man, that was the best $400 I've ever spent in my entire life getting that. Because you not only paid for the instruction, but you really were advanced funding a lifetime of support. And which meant that every time he came back to town, I, I could come back and sit in on the course. And I ended up becoming his apprentice. You know, I knew that I wanted so to be a like? teacher. It just meant shadowing him whenever he was around as much as he would allow me to. Sure. Um, you know, I just wanted to be around and hear, hear the knowledge again and again, and just kind of also observe how he was living in his life because mm -hmm. I'd already identified this is what I want to do. 
you know, he was probably the coolest person that I knew at the time as well, because it was almost like he had figured out the secret. It's not just about making money. It's not just about having stuff. It's not just about being in a relationship. It's about the whole package, which is you're having a healthy inner state as well. Because if you have a healthy inner state, as you know, things, when you go on the roller coaster ride of life and you have losses, you know, that can knock somebody off and, and ruin their day or week or year or decade. And a lot of people don't bounce back from that. But if you have a healthy inner life, then, you know, you can have the losses that everybody else has, but you can, you're, you're fine. In terms of being a teacher, what was the biggest takeaway from Tom? Biggest takeaway was patience. Because I would go back and hear him teach other people, and I would hear people ask the same questions over and over <laughs> and over. And Tom was a master at making people feel seen and heard. And he would answer each question as if it was the first time he'd ever heard the question. What are like the most common questions? Uh, people would say, you know, I have too many. My mind still feels really busy. I don't know if I'm doing it right. That's probably the most common question. And Tom would go, you know, that's very interesting. Um, who else feels like that? <laughs> and everybody would <laughs> that's raise so their good. hand. so <laughs> good. And people would see, you know, instantly, oh, I'm not the only one. And he would start speaking to that. And then he'd refer back to the person, you know, if John hadn't pointed it out, then it wouldn't have given me an opportunity to say this next part that I think everybody's going to benefit from. You're going to love this answer, John. Da, 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 da. So he just had a really personable sure. approach. And he also remembered names really well. Our, and I thought that was very good, too. Well, these are just amazing lessons for yeah, life anybody. And, and business exactly. and the world and yeah. how you operate, which is very, very, very tough to do right. when you're in the moment. Not a lot of and people like, do it. Yeah. Shit happens and right. you'd want to, you know, got just... Yeah, he's just magnanimous. And just there's this one other thing that he did that I think will really kind of encapsulate his whole deal, right? This happened years and years later. So Tom has gone through different iterations of how he sort of presents himself. As you know, you alluded to he's got a beard now. He's got a beard. He wears lots of beads now. I've joked to Charlie, like, looks like a wizard a little bit. Looks like a wizard a bit. He's got his wizard chic outfits. He does. Very chic wizard. And um, there was a phase for a period of time where he was wearing only white pants, white jeans, you know, very, he always likes really fitted stuff. And, um, and I thought that was really cool. And so when I started teaching meditation, I adopted the white pants look and I just, you know, it's just very refined. And, um, by then did you grow out of your, your socks? Uh, (laughs) before that, prior to that, prior to that, I used to wear almost exclusively Lululemon and and crocs that was my uniform okay so you went white pants for yoga teaching so then i I, yeah i I graduated to white pants white jeans and so my students came to know me as the guy that wears white jeans because a lot of people that i taught didn't know who tom was but i would always talk about him you know and tom would still come to town from time to time so anyway tom is in town one time and i'd send some of my students out to see tom go to one of his talks and somebody went up to him and said, Tom, you know, I noticed you have on white jeans. And, you know, uh, Light, Light Watkins wears a lot of white jeans. Did you get that from him? <laughs> and Tom goes, yes, I did. <laughs> you know, and that's who he is. He's, he, he's not interested in like, no, he got that from me. And, you know, like any, any <laughs> sure. sort of normal person would have done. Sure. And they came back and reported it to me. And, and I, they still thought he got it from me. And I, I just, you so know. So when did you stop wearing white jeans? <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I stopped wearing white jeans because I was going to restaurants and uh, and I would be eating barbecue or something like that. And I would wipe white my jeans. hands on my pants thinking I had a napkin in my lap. And it turned out I didn't because it was white, <laughs> white pants. So it just became too high maintenance. So you start, you fall in love with meditation. You start teaching. Yeah. Um, let's segue to today and <clears throat> meditation and for one, how far it's come. I think my take is it's gone from something that's been a little fringed, uh, almost in the mainstream to some degree. But I, I would also say that from what I've heard, there's okay, it's in the mainstream, but then there's like a practice and implement people get excited and they drop off. And I want to talk about a couple of things. One, how do people get into it, so to speak, like, and, and start a practice and, 
lot of people say they don't have time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start there before I get into why, like what, with what's going on in the world, why this is maybe one of the most critical things we should be doing for our own personal well-being. Right. Well, I think this is the second, re- uh, this is a resurgence of popularity. You know, back in the 70s when TM, um, I think TM was probably the, the first. Beatles, yeah. The first practice that popularized uh, meditation, and then you had a lot of studies done at the time, and there was a book called The Relaxation Response, written by Herbert Benson, who was one of the first guys to study meditation, who I actually reference in my book. His book sold four million copies. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, he gave it that validation of being a Harvard-trained doctor. Let's just take a minute and explain to people what the relaxation response is. And also, there's like a really simple technique with breathing for people. So basically what Benson did was he was the first guy to study TM. The TM, he was a, he was a Harvard researcher and he was studying stress and he was uh, being hounded by the the local Cambridge transcendental meditation uh, uh, people who had been practitioners to study them because they had, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that you know, Maharishi and these guys, they didn't have any st- studies that verified or validated what the they were saying works, yeah. was happening. Yeah, they just, they they had uh, the sort of ancient understanding that meditation is good. And, right. you know, people in India don't really meditate for the same reasons why right. we meditate. They meditate <clears throat> to get closer to God, which is to get closer to themselves, become self-realized. And any health benefits are just desirable side effects. And over here, we meditate because, you know, it makes us more productive, basically. Yep. Performance, it, stress, anxiety. Enhances sleep, exactly. Yep. We don't really care about getting close to God part because we can't measure that, right? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, but so so he, he, he kind of was in that space of Western medicine and research when, the, when in the 1970s, and 60s, they did not recognize a connection between the mind and the body. They saw no connection. And any hint uh, or suggestion that there was a connection was seen as complete nonsense. So when these guys were coming up to Herbert Benson saying, look, we do this meditation thing, you know, he's like, what's meditation? Oh, it's just, we sit down, we think this sound, and it helps to lower our blood pressure. He's thinking to himself, there's no way, right? But he was also innovating this other phenomenon called the white coat effect, which was uh, something that he observed. Different than the white gene effect. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When he would measure his heart, uh, his, his heart uh, disease patients in his doctor's office, he would notice that their measurements would be a lot higher than if they measured themselves at home. And there's something about being around an authority figure that increased blood pressure. Sure. So he labeled that as the white lap, the white coat effect. And so that kind of tipped him off that maybe there is a connection between how someone feels and what's happening inside of their body. And so these meditators kept hounding him and hounding him. And then eventually he acquiesced and decided that, you know, what does he have to lose? Um, and so he brought them in and during the off hours started hooking themselves, hooking them up to all kinds of measuring devices. And he ended up seeing to his complete shock that when people practiced transcendental meditation, even people with only two weeks of experience, you know, or people with nine years of experience, (coughs) their nervous systems, their central nervous systems could achieve states of rest that were deeper than sleep. And this was a big deal because no one had ever seen this before. This was literally a unique state of consciousness. And so one morning he's, um, you know, he's shaving and he's thinking about one of his mentors who is, his name is Dr. Walter Cannon, who coined the term, the fight or flight reaction. Sure. And he thought, the stressors, you know it's like the opposite. This is the opposite <clears throat> of that. And this is, we'll call this a relaxation response. And then the next you know, being a scientist and a researcher, he starts asking all these questions. Do you need to practice transcendental meditation? Or are there certain elements of the practice that can be replicated without having to go through the training sure. and still create the same effect? And so he started testing people, meditating while standing, while running on treadmills, without a mantra, with made-up mantras, you know, etc. And what he found was that there are three components that are necessary for eliciting the, re- the relaxation response. Sitting comfortably, mm-hmm. 
and having a passive attitude around your mind and your thoughts. In other words, don't resist anything. And then having some sort, he called it a point of focus, right? Now, TM would never call that a point of focus, but you can't really have a passive attitude and a point of focus at the same time. So what he was implying was having a central thought that you could come back to when the mind got lost in its sort of passive nature. And those three elements could produce the relaxation response. And he started doing a bunch of research around that. And this is where he broke off with the TM organization because they obviously wanted him to just say TM was the thing that sure. does it. And he was saying, no, you don't have to be, you don't have to learn TM in order to create the One experience. of my favorite things is what I tell people is the inhale for two, exhale for four. Yeah. And so that was, that was another part of it too, yeah. was the breathing. You, you could use your breath as a replacement for the mantra. And he wrote this book, The Relaxation Response, which was basically a handbook for how to elicit the response um, without, uh, uh, easily at, sure. at wherever you are. And what's interesting is I kind of, I saw that, that was one of the books that I used during the, re the writing of my book. And, I, and like I said, there are some words and terms that he used that I think could have been articulated better. better. And I have all respect for him. Sure. But, you know, he's not a meditation teacher. He's a, he's a doctor. Researcher, yeah. It'd be like me, the med, like the meditation teacher, writing a book on how to do heart surgery, you know. From, is that next? From studying it. it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, I could probably do a decent <clears throat> job if I looked at it enough and sure. understood it enough. But if I've never actually done it, you know, he never meditated. Sure. Benson never meditated. Oh, really? No. I didn't know that. No, he 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 was so... How could he be doing all the research and be like, this stuff works, but I don't have time for because this. Because he caught so much heat from his colleagues. He didn't want oh, them to think he was biased. Oh, interesting. So he took a big one for the team <laughs> and decided that I'm going to remain objective and unbiased by not learning how to meditate. So if meditation has made this, we'll, we'll call it a resurgence, a big resurgence. Like, where do you think we're at today? I think right now we're in, the, we're in a state where there is a mass appeal for meditation. It's definitely gotten to a point where it's hit critical mass in the in the media centers of our culture new yep. york and la and so it hasn't hit critical mass in places like where i'm from alabama or lexington kentucky or you know idaho but it's getting it's going in that direction it's probably where yoga was 20 right. years ago so where do you what do you think it needs what do you think is missing i think is it more science is it no i don't think it's more science i think it just needs to it just needs to show up in pop culture more and you're seeing that you know mm -hmm. if you, I, I was watching the show billionaires oh yeah billions and they're, yeah billions yeah, they and they're, all have they're like all their, meditating in there yeah well it's, and, it's a big performance booster in like silicon valley right. and hedge fund like yeah. the famous bridgewater the huge hedge fund is everyone has to learn tm that's right and the guy and why because ray dalio. He, ray dalio is he a warm and fuzzy guy is going to give you a hug and wants you to get in touch with god no yeah, he wants yeah. you to perform and make more money. That's right. <laughs> and even Jeff Bezos hinted that, you know, <clears throat> the best thing he's doing for his investors is getting more rest. And that's really what meditation can do and, and help us in terms of efficiency is just provide the body with more rest. And I think more people are starting to make that connection sure. because the opposite of that is just not, it's not sustainable, which is working around the clock, you know, and, and accumulating all this stress and, so I think more and more people are starting to see that that's not well, the best way to approach. Also, if you look at the news and we've got you know, fires in California, climate change, hurricanes, sexual assault, like it just racism. I feel like we, one could you just look at, you know, the front page of the New York Times or Twitter or social media and, and it's like, what the to, fuck? Like yeah. what, what the what is happening? Yeah. Not yeah. to mention like politics here in America. I mean, you know, it just, yeah. And it, it's the, like, we're and fucked. And we're in, yeah, we're in a capitalist society, which means that, you know, the bottom line is basically driving the decisions. And if the bottom line isn't where it needs to be, you could very easily get laid off. Sure. Or Bitcoin could collapse. Yeah. And then everybody loses all their money. So like, put in I, it. So it, I think the overarching message is you don't have any control over your external circumstances, not nearly as much as right. we think we do or want to. And so the only thing you can control is what's happening inside. And if right. that's being dictated by stress or by worry or anxiety, then 
everything appears to be chaotic in your life. And that's why meditation is, re- is still relevant. That's why we're still talking about it today. Well, well I would argue it's, it's probably more relevant and needed than ever. Because how could yeah. you not look at the news and be pissed or angry or like something's wrong with you if you're happy? Yeah, so we can't control what's happening around us, but we can't control what's happening inside of us unless we're, we're worried, unless we're anxious. And that distorts our perception around what's going on around us. So, you know, really the only way to, and this is something that kind of occurred to me as I was getting deeper and deeper into meditation, you know, we have our, we have our homes, right? And even that's not stable in a lot of situations. Sure. So really our inner, inner world is our, can be our fortress of solitude mm. if we are able to cultivate that. And everybody agrees that meditation is a good thing. I've been running, I, I know what I was going to say. When I would announce to the people, people that I was a vegan, you know, you have all kinds of people, oh, you know, you should be eating meat or this and that. They have, everyone has an opinion about diet. Absolutely. But nobody <laughs> hates on meditation. They may hate on their ability to meditate, but I think everybody thinks meditation would improve their life to some extent if they had the time, if they can do it. So I think the big question now is how, how do you do this in a way that makes sense? Well, let's talk about time. That's a lot of people say, I don't have the time. Yeah. So what do you say to that? I say that you, you don't have time to not meditate, Mm. right? Um, I have the same amount of time as everybody else. And what, what, what you find when you meditate is your time gets refunded back to you. In time, you're not having to waste being sick or making stupid decisions or <laughs> not seeing a connection between something that was obvious. And, um, and, and that's a time suck. All of us have things that we were dealing with now that were probably triggered from something that we mis- made, a, some mistake we made 10 years ago. And um, it's... You know, it's it's those those kinds of mistakes become fewer and fewer with the the more meditation that we do because meditation expands our awareness and allows us to to make those kind of connections easier. So, what's the best example of that expanding awareness? Like, was there a moment in your practice where you're like, "Holy cow!" One of my this works. Yeah, one of my students he he describes it very. Uh, eloquently, he says, "It's the ability to see around the corner, and that speaks directly to intuition, intuition yeah. which we all obviously have. Um, but we're not. A lot of times, people think their body is telling them one thing, and it really it could be telling them something, um, something different. And you know, it's in my own personal experience, I think I've had a really good relationship with my own intuition." But, you know, I still have had moments where I've ignored it. I remember during the 2006 um, real estate bubble, mm-hmm. I was, I, they were giving away, they're basically giving away loans for anything. And I was decided that I was going to become this real estate mogul. And, uh, and I got loans for, I mean, I'm teaching yoga, $800 a week. And I got loans for about $2 million worth of property Oh my God! that I was going to buy and then flip it you know, within six months and everything in my body told me, you know, this is not a good deal. I was dealing with this realtor who, you know, I think he, he had good intentions cause he had been flipping properties for a very long time, sure. but he still had an invested interest in me following through with the deal. All real estate agents do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I didn't really know that at the time. I didn't know anything about real estate at the time. Um, so I was just kind of listening to this person and also having my own intuition telling me, you know, guiding me, trying to say, this is not the best thing. And then my friends are all saying, I don't think you want to do this, but I kind of went through it anyway, ended up losing my shirt, losing my oh. pants, losing everything, almost having to file bankruptcy. Oh. And I could look back and see very clearly, you know, my, my intuition told me not to do this and I ignored right. it. And and so this was, I'd been meditating at the time too. You right. Know? And it was, it was, it was a very loud and clear voice. And after that was the experience I needed to have sure. in order to start to realize, wait a minute, I'm cultivating something that's very powerful. And it's so powerful because I don't have to know intellectually why something is not right. You just know. My body will just tell me. 
I feel like meditation also, at least for me, helps distinguish the the mental chatter that we all have, mm-hmm. the monkey mind, so to speak, from intuition. And it's still like no one's perfect. We're all humans and that mm-hmm. still happens. But I think it helps separate that yeah, a little it, bit. We're it, like, okay, like monkey mind over here. Let me turn right. that out and I'll come back over here. Yeah. Yeah. I call it the ticker tape. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that is perpetuated by imbalances in the body, too. You know, a lot of people think I'm anxious meaning they'll say to themselves, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm sick, but actually it's the body that they're referring to. The body's anxious, the body's depressed, the body's sick. Who you are is actually perfect, whole, and complete on some spiritual level. And um, and so those, those imbalances in the body can bombard the mind with impressions that don't necessarily verify or validate the top end of anyone's experience and it makes you see fear makes you feel separated makes you feel isolated and alone and i think people mistakenly blame their mind for those feelings when actually it's something going on in the body so when we meditate meditation obviously is renowned for releasing stress where is it releasing stress from not the mind the body Mm. the body gets the benefit of the stress release and as a byproduct of that the mind becomes clearer. Sure. So then you can you can tune into or target in on the intuitive voice a lot easier because your body's not being a drag on the experience. Sure. So what keeps you up at night and what has you excited in the morning? What keeps me up at night? Um, you know, sometimes when we're in these when we're in the thick of these kind of national conversations around racism around sexism you know these kinds of things lend themselves towards self-reflection at least i think they should mm-hmm. and you know uh, when a lot of this sex abuse stuff started coming out i think probably every man in america or maybe even around the world thought back to their past and you know i've been i've i've considered myself to be very kind of nice polite guy done anything intentionally that's hurt anybody but you know you read some of these stories um and a lot of times the guys didn't know that they had done anything that was hurtful and apparently they were hurtful so i've you know i've thought about things like that obviously very naturally and there's been very terrible examples as well <laughs> some big ones where it's like how yeah. these, these people should be in jail like what the how the but i think fuck as has a, this happened for 20 years as a as a person who meditates and who's very self-reflective anyway you don't want to be creating more pain in the world sure. so you know you think about those kinds of things and you you become more sensitive to other people who are in pain sure and, you know when the whole thing about the slavery in, in libya libya came out sure it's like, wow, people are enslaved right now, now and I'm lying in my bed, yeah. and what am I going to do about that? Right. So, yeah, you just kind of, I think, I think as someone who meditates and is really engaged in that experience, you take on bigger challenges. It, it goes beyond just, oh, how am I going to pay my bills next sure. week, to bigger, more expansive challenges of how are we going to, what am I going to do? What's my personal contribution to world peace or to happiness and those kinds of things. And so my event that you spoke at the shine, Shine, amazing event. Everyone needs to check that out too. That was born out of that internal internal dialogue with myself. And uh, when, for those of you who don't know the shine is a, it's a basically a variety show experiences to help inspire people to just do more, be more, give more in in a way that, that speaks to them so that, we can be the change that we want to see. And what has you excited in the morning? Another day to, another chance to turn it all around. (laughs) Another opportunity to forgive, another opportunity to create, another opportunity to connect, you know, and I'm I'm not speaking metaphorically or I'm, I'm, I mean that literally like every interaction, I I really do believe there are no throwaway moments in the world. Hmm. And so every person you come across, everything you see, Everything you hear has the potential to shape your perspective of the world and of yourself and your 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 uh, role in it. And you know, I've been writing. I, one of the things that I do each day is I write a daily dose of. You guys have daily dose of wellness. I do I have a daily dose of inspiration that I send out to a, a list of people who signed up to receive it. And it's just a little snippet, some anecdote, musing, a story, something that can help inspire people hmm. when they get it in the morning. 
So I wake up and the first thing I do is I check to make sure it went out. (laughs) (laughs) Because me being human, you know, sometimes I set it to PM instead of AM. Sure. And then, uh, and then I start, you know, because I write that every day, my life has very much become about being inspired myself and looking at things through that lens and maybe seeing what I can use. Cause you run out of, you feel like you're going to run out of content all the time. Sure. <laughs> what am I going to, what story am I going to write today? And, uh, so everything becomes a potential, uh, content for that. And sure. so th- that, that's kind of shaped my, my morning as well as the rest of my day. And if you could go back in time and give underwear model, uh, light walk-ins <laughs> advice, what would, what would that advice be? You know, uh, my first, the first thought is I would tell him to start meditating earlier (laughs) just because I feel like you get so much benefit from that. But I think I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to appreciate it as much as I did when I started when I was in my late twenties. So I would, I would just, I would just remind him that it's not about acquiring things in order to be happy, that happiness is always found right where you are. You don't have to be a certain way. You don't have to be in a certain place. You are where you are and you're as happy as you're going to be able to be in this moment. And so what you do in this moment either adds to that or it takes away from that. Amazing. Everyone, you have to go check out Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. Amazing book. Check out all Light's amazing classes on Mind Body Green if you want to meditate. But Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Light. Thanks for those wonderful questions. That was awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks.